Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. We believe all survivors should have access to justice and resources to help them heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. Join us as we talk with survivors and various community members who are taking action to normalize the conversation around sexual abuse in the pursuit of justice and healing. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Shauna C. Terrell. Welcome to Support for Survivors. Today, we are happy to welcome Tanisha Johnson to our show. Now, when I say that Tanisha is a force to be reckoned with, I mean it. She is an entrepreneur, an author of 18 books, and a book coach. And beyond that, she's done so much more. She was the executive director of a hit play. Um, It was based off of one of her books, I believe editorial director for a magazine. She's a national president of the Aspiring Writers Association of America. Um, Lots and lots going on. So welcome, Tanisha. We're very happy to have you here today. Thank you so much, Honesty. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we, it's not every day we get somebody who has so much going on. Like you've done a lot. Um, I'm always so impressed with people who have done it. I'm like, where in the world do you find the time? So why don't we just get started with you telling us a little bit about yourself and we can get into your journey and your healing and, you know, why you think it's important to be doing the things that you're doing. Absolutely. So um, most people know me as like the book bully, the editorial (laughs) guru. (laughs) Um, People say if you hang around me long enough, even if you don't think you have a book inside of you, you will have a book inside of you. (laughs) Um, So I'm that type of person that kind of pushes people into their purpose to get their book out into the earth, publisher, ghostwriter, all of those good things. Um, But the other big piece, Shaughnessy, as you know, is I am an advocate for helping both men and women heal from the effects of sexual abuse. So that's my heartbeat. That's like my one thing I tell people now, it's like a light bulb went on probably about two years ago, Shaughnessy. And I say, God, if you put me in the earth to solve one problem, I believe this is it. I believe this is it. And I'm okay with it being that one thing. That's hard too. And I, what a feeling knowing that you found your calling and you get to act on it, even though certainly your calling is something that probably nobody would have chosen to be put in the position that you've been put in and to have the knowledge and the, 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 be able to help people with that because you've been through it yourself. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? You want to just tell us how your journey began and brought you to where you are today? Yeah, so born to a 13-year-old mother, probably about a month and a half before her 14th birthday. I've never met my biological father. I tell the running joke if he's walking down the street or walks into one of my events. I don't know him, never met him, never had a phone call, no email, no text. There's this big question mark over my head. And so fast forward, I was sexually abused by a female cousin by the age of seven, eight, relocated to Detroit by the age of nine. So that kind of shut it down for a little bit and then molested by a male hairdresser by the age of 13, 14. Mm -hmm. And so as you can imagine, by the time I got to college, very promiscuous, I tell people I turned into a garden tool which will remain nameless, <laughs> um, but li- but literally because I didn't know my purpose and because that's what I felt equated to love. I felt that sex equated to love, that I was just 
wild and out. I was just out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, when you t- talk to people who've been through things like what you've been through and you talk about that level and period of time of promiscuity and that it does seem to be a common thing that a lot of people go through just because just like you said, the way that you process love and think love works is, isn't healthy. And you don't even know it's not healthy. You have no idea. You're just out there living your life. And, um, you know, I think there's probably a lot of feelings of emptiness that surround that, but you don't get it at the time. So going back to when the abuse first happened, did, did any of the adults in your life know, did anybody have any idea that these things had gone on either with your cousin or the hairdresser? So let me say this, Shaughnessy, if they knew, I didn't know that they knew. (laughs) I feel like my grandmother probably knew something was going on because the cousin who molested me could always come to our house, but I could never go to her house. Uh, So there was apparently something happening at her house. Apparently somebody was doing these things to her, but then when she would babysit, she always had to come to my house. So it's almost like they brought the drama and all of the molestation and everything to me. It wasn't like I was being dropped off at somebody else's house. She was coming to my house. The male hairdresser, when I look back on it in hindsight, I don't know that my mother knew. He was a deacon in our church and he was mm-hmm. also a male hairdresser. He did hair in his basement. And so my mother would drop me off. I always had the first appointment on Saturday so that I wouldn't be in the salon all day. So 7 a.m., This man is just coming downstairs, you know, from his bedroom and I'm his first client. And nine times out of 10, I'm there by myself until 830, nine o'clock until the second person would come. And so over time, my mother stopped coming to those appointments with me. She would literally drop me off and then pick me up when I was done. Well, that left me vulnerable for two hours with a single man in his house who was supposed to be doing my hair, but was doing other things as well. Wow. How awful, you know, we were, I was talking about this some, with someone yesterday that sometimes as parents, you know, you're, you're presenting your child on a silver platter to these abusers and you have no idea because no idea. they do such a good job. So especially with him, do you think that he did a good job within your community of grooming the community and everyone into thinking that he was a good guy and that he could be trusted or I always look at that, the big picture, like how they're mm-hmm. able to get away with things like that. Yeah, I think for me, he was likable. He was lovable. He was funny. He was engaging. You know, everybody loved him. He had nothing but female clients. He was doing hair like he wasn't a barber. So he was actually Mm -hmm. hairstyling and he was a male who was styling. So there wasn't like a distrust. These women loved him, you know, so it, it wasn't like, oh, this is a man who I can't trust with my daughter. Mm -hmm. It was, no, I've been going to this hairdresser for years. Surely I can trust him. And he was a deacon in the church. And so I think a lot of times we put a lot of weight on titles in the church and people who are Mm -hmm. active in ministry and at the forefront. And you feel like, listen, if I can't trust anybody else, I know I can trust this person. We talk about that a lot on the show, how, um, the importance of churches doing their proper background work is so important because it is such, it's a gold mine for predators because everyone's vulnerable, at least at some point, I think when it comes to the church and then you put so much trust in that and it's not completely unlike doctors. We put so much trust in doctors. You think if you walk sure. into the doctor's office and in that examination room, if you're not safe there, where can you be safe? And I think it's similar to that. So people, you know, you want to trust, like you don't want to think about these things, but unfortunately 
it happens. Did he groom you at all? Did he, you know, was he coercive to you or did he make you any promises or was it just, he didn't say anything? He didn't say anything. It was more of the subtle movements over time where mm-hmm. I would be laying my head back at the bowl, getting my hair washed. And of course he's like brushing his private part up against my arm or mm-hmm. my hand on the chair that's resting there. So, I mean, those types of things where, you know, at first you think, oh, he's just, he's not intentionally doing that. Like he's right. just, he just bumped into me. And so over time, it just progressing and progressing because I didn't say anything and I didn't really know how to respond because at first glance, you think it's a mistake. Like this really mm-hmm. isn't happening. It's not this person. I know this person. I've yeah. been coming to this person forever, you know? So at first it's a shock. And then when I did speak up and say something, the biggest thing was, please don't tell, please don't tell, you know? And it was like, I was scared to tell. Also because of what had happened to me with the cousin, where it was like, are people even going to believe me? Yeah. That's a big problem within the family, right? You you don't even know. And probably looking back, you know, maybe they would have, because I think you're right. Something clearly was happening. How much older was your cousin than you when she was doing that to you? So she might've been 12, but it was basically feeling and fondling and Mm -hmm. oral sex. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't understand oral sex at the age of seven or eight, but it's one of those things where it's like, why would she even understand oral sex at the age Mm -hmm. of 12? Right. Exactly. Where did that come from? Yeah. Um, Because it certainly came from somewhere. So you said that, and you know, you're getting into your twenties and you went through a period of promiscuity. Is there at some point in time where it kind of hit you that what happened was abuse and that you were having some issues because of that? Or how did that kind of evolve? So Shaughnessy, believe it or not, I always tell people God was speaking to me. Even when I was in the club, I could be high, drunk. (laughs) Like I tell people it's the funniest thing ever that I was hearing the voice of God, but didn't know it was the voice of God. There was a fear like no other. I'll never Mm -hmm. forget my freshman or sophomore year. I went to the student health center at my college and I had an STD. Praise God. It was something that was curable. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was literally a voice that told me next time it will be something that you cannot get rid of. Wow. And that was like a wake up call Mm -hmm. for me. And just getting to a place, Shaughnessy, where... I had to realize I slept with so many men in college, some of them whose names I didn't even know, some of them who I woke up to the next morning, like, who are you? Where did we meet? Because I was that hungover. I was that drunk to where it was like constantly searching and looking and prying for something deeper, something more. But it was also in a way a form of control for me Mm -hmm. because it was like, well, I know men want my body, so I'm going to approach them. And I'm going to be the person who's going to initiate the intimacy, the sex, all of that, because it was another form of control, because I felt like my control and my options had been taken away from me at such an early age. So it Mm -hmm. was like, well, I'm just going to pick and choose the men that I want to sleep with then. That makes sense. I mean, it does, you know, you're like, okay, well, I get to take it back. And uh, we talk about this a lot on the show that so many instances, like sexual abuse and sexual assault, no matter the age of the victim, it, your control is taken away from you. 
period, no matter what. And so regaining that sense of control. And that's something that when I was, when I was prosecuting and talk a lot about with uh, sexual assault nurses is making sure that the survivors know that they are in control and then it is their decisions that they are running the show and not us. I think that's a really important thing, but it sounds like, you know, you as a young woman were were already like kind of fighting with yourself to get that back. And I think there's probably a a depth of pain there that you didn't even know that you were in. And then the other part, Shaughnessy, is between high school and college, somewhere along the way, I fell into addiction to pornography, addiction to masturbation, so that even when I wasn't having sex with other men or trying out different women, which I did in college, it was one of the things where it was like I was then trying to self-please. And I was trying to recreate that feeling because what a lot of people don't talk about is that even when you're being molested, the body responds to whatever is stimulating it, whether it's a male, female, inanimate object, whatever it is, the body is taught to respond to any type of stimulation. So after a while, I started trying to recreate that feeling Mm -hmm. um, with or without a person. That's so interesting. I will get to your books here in a second, but when I was reading through them, one of the stories was of a male survivor that really popped out to me. And it was, he was detailing the abuse and that his body did, you know, it was, and it was with an older man when he was a child and he, I don't think he's homosexual, but it doesn't really matter if he is or he isn't, he's a freaking child. And so then so many levels of confusion because it felt good physically, but um, he also felt disgusting. And so I had a client at one point in time who was sexually assaulted in a professional atmosphere, like a massage studio and her Mm -hmm. body reacted to it. And she harbored so much guilt and resentment toward herself because of that. And um, I think it's really great that you brought that up because I think a lot of people don't understand that at all, that that the human body is made a certain way and and it will react a certain way, even if you don't want anything to do with it. And it's still not your fault. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you kind of have this epiphany. What happens next? So I tell people I came to Christ and I came to know Christ and I transformed my very life kicking and screaming. It was not an easy choice. I tell people I was happy, you know, being promiscuous. I was good being the person in the club and being the life of the party and drinking and smoking and all of those things. I was, as they say, living my best life. I was good. (laughs) But again, I felt like I was trying to be somebody and I was trying to get attention and I was trying to, and it was the wrong type of attention. But for me, nonetheless, it was attention. And for somebody who felt like they had lost their voice, they had lost their identity along the way, it was key for me to come to know Christ to say, okay, why did you create me? Why did these things happen to me? And I think a lot of times people will ask, why does a big God allow things like this to happen to children? And I believe, and I always say, okay, God can't get the glory if you don't tell the story. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things where we continue to let it ride on for generations and generations on our family bloodline. We don't say anything. It's like, hush, you better not say anything. It's like what happens in this house stays in this house but the house is freaking burning down (laughs) you know what I'm saying it's one of those things like great what happens in this house we won't talk about and you're all gonna go down with it yep yes but we are all gonna go down with the freaking house it's on fire and nobody is saying anything 
Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Like the analogy. Yeah. So I had to make a conscious decision to change my life. And just that particular hearing the voice of God say the next time it'll be something you couldn't cure. I'll be honest. It scared me. Yeah. There was a level of fear like, okay, wait, I've been granted some grace here. Let's take a step back and uh, yeah, really, yeah. Good for you. Cause I mean, I think some people, it takes more of that to kind of establish their wake up call. So, I mean, it's good that I'm sure it was scary as hell, but yeah. Um, oh, it was scary. <laughs> that's not I, what you want to hear. No, that's definitely not what you want to hear when you go to the doctor's office. Certainly not, yeah. but you know, great that you used it as your, like, I mean, is it, would you kind of see it as your starting point on your path to healing? Oh yes, for sure. And so the path to healing was one of those things where I realized I was just angry. And so I tell people, when you see the little girl or the little boy who's always angry, always getting in trouble, never smiling, never laughing, doesn't have any joy, something happened. Like Mm -hmm. something happened, Shaughnessy, to steal that away from them. Because Mm -hmm. as little kids, we have it. And then it's like we get exposed to the world and it's like a light switch goes off and something happens to steal our joy. Yeah. And yeah. And so for me, it started with individual counseling. I tell people I've been in individual counseling now 10 plus years Mm -hmm. and I'm married. And a lot of people will say, well, are you in marital counseling? No, because at the end of the day, a lot of the issues that I brought into the marriage have absolutely nothing to do with my husband. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of people who are married always say my marriage isn't working. We need marriage counseling. No, those two people probably need individual counseling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And we don't like to do the individual work. It's easier to point the finger and say, well, Shaughnessy did this to me mm-hmm. or Shaughnessy did that to me versus, well, what role did you play? What baggage did you bring into the marriage? And I always tell people, I'm like, we all bring baggage into the marriage and it's not Louis Vuitton. It's not Kate Spade. It's like <laughs> dollar store, Walmart brand, <laughs> tattered and torn, like <laughs> luggage with a whole bunch of crap in it. Yeah. That's true. I, it, it, it's such an important point too, in terms of sexual abuse survivors, because that specific baggage is different than everything else. And the level, it just, per, it's pervasive. It takes, it can take, it can at least take over your entire life. And it's interesting that you bring up the point of your relationship with your husband, because I am guessing that there were all kinds of issues or there could be all kinds of issues that arise from that intimacy issues. And I'm not saying specifically mm-hmm. in your relationship, I think a lot of people don't understand or like they haven't made the connection yet that the, the relationship issues they're having now link back to that. Yes. And I'm glad you said that not to cut you off, but the biggest thing, the biggest thing is I used to tell my husband before he was my husband, because we've been dating off and on since I was 14. I'm 42 now. (laughs) So we've been in each other's life a very long time. And I used to tell Yeah. And I used to tell him, I don't like oral sex. I don't like oral sex. You know, you don't have to do that. I don't want to try it. But at the end of the day, it was because that was my first introduction via molestation. And I told myself subconsciously, you don't like that. You don't want that. But when he does it, understand that it's probably the quickest way for me to climax so understand what I would be missing out on if I was now 18 years into my marriage still telling him no we can't have oral sex and then I'm unpleased I'm Mm -hmm. unhappy I'm not climaxing because but see how quickly 
it tried to be turned into because it's good with my husband, mm-hmm. but as a child, it was turned into a negative. Yeah, of course you didn't yeah. know you have any idea. Yeah. And then yeah, that's a, so interesting. It you could be missing out on so much because um, if you hadn't, you know, taken the time and, and faced it and yeah. figured out it, what it was for what it was, and then be able to move on in your marriage yeah. with your husband in a positive yeah, and- way. And the other thing, Shaughnessy, I tell people is like, I still have triggers. And so people really ask, like, you know, what does freedom look like for you? Freedom for me is getting to a place where I can be intimate with my husband and I have triggers. And we've worked through a lot, but I'm not there yet. And and I think that can be hard for him sometimes because it can feel like rejection. It can feel like rejection if he tries to touch me a certain way and I freeze or I back up or I say, stop, you know, so. Thank you for, you know, telling us that because it's a deeply intimate thing. And I think it's important for, cause like, it's, it's easy, very easy to look at you and see all that you've done and all you're doing and people are like, oh, she's healed. She's great. She's good to go. And it's, it's good to see that even someone like you, who's doing so many great things and has achieved such healing, you still, there are still struggles and it's, it's always a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want people to feel like it's a one and done. I feel like the healing is a process. I'm 42, still working to heal the little seven-year-old girl that was molested on hardwood floors in her grandmother's house. Like that's 30 plus years that I've carried that little girl, those images. I mean, literally. So it may take me a lifetime to get to that place where there are no triggers, but I believe it can happen. That's, That's really lovely. Did you, so as an adult, when you're starting to kind of face some of these things and trying to develop your healing, did you ever tell anyone in your family about what happened when you were a child? Did you tell your mom or your grandmother or anyone either about your cousin or about the church deacon? Yeah. So Shaughnessy, um, believe it or not, my grandmother actually passed away when I was 12. So she never knew. Yeah. She never knew. And my mother just found out when I'll never forget, I was watching the movie War Room. We had went to the theater to actually see it. And it was a week before I lost the man that I knew his dad. So my mom Mm -hmm. used to date different men. And uh, one of them she was with for about 10 years. And I grew up in my adulthood and I called him dad. Mm -hmm. And it was a week before he passed away from a heart attack. And I clearly heard God say we were pulling in from the movies And he said, call her and tell her why your relationship with her is so broken. Mm -hmm. And so I called her and I told her, I said, part of the reason is because I feel like you didn't protect me and this is what happened. And so she literally just found out maybe five years ago, but I knew, I knew I had to tell her because I'm Mm -hmm. so vocal about it. I'm doing podcast interviews. I've got the books. I've done a stage play. I mean, it's it's out there. Like I'm posting mm-hmm. it on social media. The world knows. And I didn't want her to find out in a book wow. or on social media. Yeah. So she can't say that she doesn't know. She knows. But ironically, Shaughnessy, her immediate reaction was to apologize for what happened with the male hairdresser, but not my cousin, who is her niece. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing was she wanted to know if I wanted to sue for like statute of limitations, but not sue my, my cousin, only sue the male hairdresser. Mm-hmm. So even in her apology, there was still a protection of 
what was going on in your sister's house with your niece that caused her to pick me? Yeah. So is the, do you have contact with that part of the family with your aunt, with your cousin? Is there a relationship there? So I still talk to my aunt. The cousin lives in Chicago, but I don't see her often. The Mm -hmm. last time I saw her was at her father's funeral, which was probably 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, But other than that, I I don't talk to her on the phone. She's not on social media. She kind of lives her life apart from the family. But Mm -hmm. growing up, we always knew something that was wrong, Shaughnessy, because she was the girl who would stay in her room for hours with the door locked and nobody would know what she was doing. Of course, it makes you wonder what was going on in that house, because clearly something was. And, you know, it it just clicked to me with your grandmother. She probably thought she was protecting you because she knew something was going on in the house and not ever thinking that your cousin could be a threat, too, because I don't a lot of people I don't think understand that children perpetrate, too, when things are being perpetrated on them. And so those kids are and it. It is different because it is a lot less likely for a female to perpetrate than it is for a male. But it does Mm -hmm. happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so I want people to know, because that's one of the things that came up with the males who were in my book, Hush Too. The biggest thing that was eye opening for me is they said, where do we go and heal? There are so many women's groups. There are so many uh, associations and organizations and nonprofits that are set up for women to heal from sexual abuse. But these were men who were sexually abused and Mm -hmm. they were taught to wear like a badge of honor. If a woman touched you and you were nine, you should be excited. You're a stud. Yeah. That's when it comes. Yeah. That's totally true. The double standard is just absolutely disgusting. You see it too in like teacher cases where if it's like some attractive young woman and then, you know, no, that's sexual abuse as well. Like that they are children Mm -hmm. and it shouldn't be celebrated. And I think, I think that it has been a lot, but I think it's so important for people listening to, to keep that in mind that, and I'm not saying that you should ostracize children who have been abused and sure. fear that they're going to abuse your child, but I think it's something they have to watch out for and understand that it is something that can and often does happen. Um, yeah. And in terms of male victims, so, so, so true, you know, sexual abuse is the most underreported crime there is, and it's even more underreported for boys and it is for girls for, you know, societal reasons. It's, you know, just like you said, it's a pat on the back. Wow. You're a little ladies man or whatever. Or if it's at the hands of a man, then I've talked to so many male survivors who are like, I don't want everyone to think I'm gay. And so Mm -hmm. that's a whole other level of shame. And it doesn't matter if they are, they're not gay. I don't care. No one cares, but it's hard for them, you know? And then I just, sexuality is such, um, you know, a complex thing anyway, and coming into Mm -hmm. your own and growing up without somebody jacking you up like that, it's hard. And so this just makes everything so much harder for kids who are trying to figure it out. So I don't know, I'm just so impressed by everything that you've done. And I always say, you know, people moving from Victor to survivor to thriver or activist, and I'm certainly appreciative that you're doing it. Let's talk a little bit about your books. Well, okay, first of all, you've written 18 books. I'm up to I, 20 now, Shauna Steve. Oh my lord. <laughs> I would I would be I would like to write one. Right. And you're over Let's here. Let's do so it. 20. So 
let's talk about Hush and Hush 2 first. Those are anthologies and essentially they're um, a collection of stories of survivors that you've put together. And I love the process of the books because it it shares the author's story in their own words, Mm -hmm. then some questions at the end of each story to discuss, and then kind of a short bio of the author. So how how did you even come up with the idea to put Hush and Hush 2 together? Support for Survivors is sponsored by the law firm Cohen and Malad. Cohen and Malad attorneys have over two decades of experience helping sexual abuse survivors. We work through the civil court process to get justice and compensation that can help pay for resources needed to heal from your trauma and move forward. We are proud of the work we do in giving power to your voice. And now, back to our show. So the biggest thing for me has always been, I want to be able to give people a platform for their voice to be heard, particularly those people who don't feel like they have a voice. And so I know for some people, it can be harder to put a single book out, a solo project, because it's just you. It's like you're out there as a big fish in the water. But if we do it as a collaboration, if we do it as a collaboration or a partnership, what we call an anthology with multiple authors, there is a bit of safety. There's a safety net. If I can get seven authors to speak out about it at once, even when we do the book signings, we do it as a panel discussion. Yeah. So that you're not up there telling your story by yourself, but you've got five other people surrounding Mm -hmm. you or six other people surrounding you. Strengthen numbers. Yeah, yeah, there there truly is strength in numbers. And Mm -hmm. I believe that a lot of people, Shaughnessy, who are in these books would not tell their story if they had to tell it by themselves. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's harder. And you can even see that in if you look at big, you know, media cases where once the first person comes out, Mm -hmm. it gives some courage to the other people's. And I always, you know, I hate it every time I have a case where we have multiple, multiple victims. I hate it. I hate that they've gotten away with it for so long. I hate that they've done it to so many people, but it makes the cases stronger because, you know, societally, I complain about this all the time, but we have such an issue with the way we look at victims of sexual assault and the knee jerk reaction is always, you know, to not believe or to Mm -hmm. ask, especially with adult victims, like what were they doing wrong to make this happen? And even with kids too, because those things that we were talking about earlier, first of all, sexual abuse, believing that it happened, it challenges people's worldviews and it, it rocks your world because it makes you think, oh, if the pastor was doing that, the deacon yeah. was doing that, whoever, then maybe I'm not safe either. So yeah. you don't want to believe it. And then, so unfortunately, when you do have people coming together and saying it happened to all of us, people are, they have to listen at least a little yeah. bit more than if it's just one child. Yeah. And so Shaughnessy, that's hush one and two. I have a great big challenge. I am looking for 10 men to do Hush 3, but I want it to oh, be wow. all men. Yeah, I'm not even going to include my story. I'm going to have a man write the forward and everything. But I believe there needs to be a book just dedicated to men who choose to share their story of overcoming sexual abuse. Because the thing that rings true for me is where do they go and heal? And society doesn't open a lot of doors for men to mm-hmm. go and heal. One of the guys, we when we interviewed him, he said he went to a women's group mm-hmm. to get healing. And the women 
shun him. They were like, you're big. There's no way you were sexually molested. We're not staying. If he's staying, I mean, it was a, it was a big to do. Like he pretty much had to leave or else the women just threatened to shut the group down. That's insane to me. Shaming someone that who's gone through what you've gone through (laughs) more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. But, but like you said, it's the double standard. Why are we less likely to believe that a man has been sexually abused or that if he was, he liked it, he welcomed it. Mm -hmm. It's the same way with porn and masturbation. Like that's another book I'm working on now, Shaunesty, is that it's this image of, we expect men to be addicted to porn and masturbation. Mm -hmm. We expect them to masturbate. We even say boys will be boys. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. They touch themselves. Um, But there are a lot of women who are addicted to it that we never Mm-hmm. we don't touch it we don't touch it at all for women that's uh absolutely true the double standard exists and you know i won't get too far into pornography but i will point out something else that is a concern we were talking earlier about children who have been victims themselves perpetrating on other children i was yes. talking to a sexual assault nurse not too long ago she's an er nurse and she said you know Usually if a kid comes into the ER and and they've touched another kid, you're like, okay, who touched them? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, they had, like we talked about, you have to learn it somewhere. She's like, but what we're seeing is that porn is so accessible that kids are watching porn. Their parents have no idea that they've even seen it. And then again, they don't understand. And so they're turning around to younger sibling, younger cousin, usually somebody within the family and perpetrating those same acts on them, having no idea what they're doing. And yeah. um, yeah. Yeah. And so I tell people, I'm like, you have to guard the ear gates and the eye gates. Like we just, we took my daughter's iPad away because it's like, listen, everything that comes up on TikTok is not Mm -hmm. great. So, (laughs) and and we can't control TikTok. So if I can't control TikTok, guess who doesn't get an iPad at nine years old? We'll try this again when you're like 12 or 13. But we had too many issues between YouTube Mm -hmm. and TikTok. I'm like, forget it. Just take the device. Done. Yeah. I appreciate that. I was reading on, on your website and you talk about there are just certain things your kids don't get to do. And it just is what it is. And I, (laughs) I, I am so happy to hear you say that I don't have children, but my nieces and nephews, my sisters, I know they get sick of hearing me. I'm like, Nope, don't, you cannot take the, Nope, don't do this. And they, fortunately, one of my sisters is an ER nurse. And so she's seen a lot of things going as well. And they're good about it. Like they, their kids don't stay all night at friends' houses, things like that. It just doesn't happen because as you know, that's where this stuff does happen. You know, it's not usually somebody in the bushes at the playground who steals them behind their head. No, they're over at their friend's house and mom's brothers, they're staying all night or staying with them or something like that, you know, things like that or within the family as well. Well, and I tell people more times than not is because my husband kind of goes through that now with our daughter. He's like, no, she can't spend the night over their house, but the little girl can come and spend the night at our house because we can control our house. We know what's happening. But at the same time, like my daughter has an older brother. I don't ever want a little girl to come to my house and say her older brother did something inappropriate or, you know what I'm saying? So it's it's a catch 22 because I don't want to shut down their life because of the trauma that I've been through. But at the same time, it's like, you do have to be cautious. And a lot of times it's not the guy down the street. It's not the friend from school and their father or their uncle. It's the cousin mm-hmm. who is your brother's son who you trust because it's yeah. her cousin who gets to come over freely because they're cousins. Right. But, <laughs> but of course, it's the thing of that's where the term kissing cousins comes from. 
where it's like, why are cousins kissing? You know, why is that a thing? Why do we even have that term? Yeah. It's such a delicate balance. I'm sure trying to keep them safe, but at the same time, letting them be kids and keeping everyone safe. I, it's being a parent is hard. I know that (laughs) it is, it is. So is there anything that you want to say either for survivors or for professionals who work within sexual abuse or survivors, families, you know, that you think is important for people to take away from, you know, your journey and your healing and your message? What would you want that to be for people to take away? Yeah, Shaughnessy, I would say the biggest thing is be willing to do the work to get to the root and actually walk through the healing process. This is not a sprint. Like this is a marathon. It's a long marathon. It's like longer than a 5k. (laughs) And I tell people you have to do the work and it's bit by bit and piece by piece, peeling layer by layer back, particularly for like Shaughnessy. I do a community group on Monday nights on zoom for women who want to heal from sexual abuse. And we walk through the process of the guilt, the shame, why we didn't tell, or if we did tell, what was the family's response? Some people are just now preparing to tell their story to their families. And the thing that I find interesting, Shaughnessy, is that I have women from 25 all the way to like 73. And the sad thing is that the 73-year-old women have never told a soul. So for 70-something years, let's say 60, let's say it happened at 13. Yeah. You've been holding this secret for 60 years and it's eating you from the inside out. It's only affecting you, you know? So I would say, be willing to do the work, whatever that looks like for you. For some people it's counseling, for other people it's small groups, community groups. There are a lot of books that you can read, but be willing to do the work and do the work consistently. I think a lot of times people go to counseling for six months and they say, oh, I'm good. I'm here, you know, and it's like, You've had this problem 45 years. No. There's no way it's six months. Right. Healing's not linear. I think people are like, okay, well, I've been doing this, so I should be fine now. And it's it's like, there's a visual, I think it's actually about grief, but I think healing's the same way where it's like, it's like squigglies all over the place, up and down. Yes. And like, this is what it looks like. Yes. Yes. Because part of the frustration is that as a person who feels like I have done so much work and I am so proud of myself. There are times where I feel like, oh my God, I have so far to go. Mm -hmm. I have so far to go in the healing process. I'm still working through the root of rejection and telling myself that every time somebody says no, it's not because of you. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like all all of that plays a part in how we do business, how we do ministry, friendships. It's not just showing up in relationships with men and women. It's showing up across the board. It's so true. You saying that thing about the 70 year old woman just breaks my heart. And, you know, we're doing better as a society. I really do think that we are in the middle of a shift where you said in one of your publications, you said how it's like the elephant in the room, which is true Mm -hmm. because people know, and they just don't say anything. It's this whole culture of silence around sexual abuse. And it's people like you are the reason we are getting better because you have the bravery and the courage to stand up and speak out about it. And that is the only way that this is going to continue to evolve in a positive manner because those abuse is bred in the secrets in the corners in the yes. dark spots. And yes. is, if, if we start talking about it more, they're not mm-hmm. going to be able to get away with it anymore. 
Yeah. So you said those dark spots. And the thing that God said to me, a lot of people ask me, why? Why are you so outspoken about these things? And just plain and simple, he said to me, I need you to start shining a light on dark places. Oh. Um, yeah, honesty. And I was like, well, God, what? What? use what I gave you, but shine a light and continue to shine a light. Mm-hmm on dark places. So I talk about addiction to porn. I talk about addiction Mm -hmm. to masturbation. Me and my husband have been through infidelity. We're open Mm -hmm. about talking about our affairs, those Mm -hmm. things that want to hide behind the scenes Mm -hmm. um, that keep us bound to make us think I'm the only person going through this. No, you're not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I promise you're not. There's probably a thousand other people going through it at the same time you are. They're just not talking about it. And I am. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely true. That's so, thank you so much for that. I appreciate you're willing to be vulnerable and to share those things. Cause you know, that's hard. Not everybody is. is able to do that. So thank you real quick. Now I have to ask just because you've now written 20 freaking books. Um, <laughs> what are, what else have you written? I've only read hush and hush too so far. Yeah. So when the smoke clears, a Phoenix rises actually talks about, I released that book back in 2014 talks about um, our blended family issues. It talks Mm -hmm. about my bouts of depression, suicidal thoughts, all of those things. That's called When the Smoke Clears. And then in 2017 and 2018, we actually did it as a sold out stage production in downtown Detroit. So I'll probably be bringing it back this year because we haven't done it in a few years because of COVID and everything. But my plan is to bring it back in the fall of this year. Probably change the ending. Every time we do it, we do an alternate ending. So, yep. So we're looking to actually make it a web series as well. And then we'll do it as a short film. I also have a, yeah, I have a short film written. The script is written. It's called What Happens in This House. My goodness. Yeah, which of course is based on the the ideology. What happens in this house stays in this house. Mm -hmm. But it'll be a short film about sexual abuse as well. And my hope and my prayer is that once I get these men into Hush 3, that I can take all of the authors from Hush 1, 2, and 3 and do a full documentary of them Mm -hmm. on video sharing their story. Because I think it's more powerful Yes, I love the books and I know that people read it and lives are being transformed. But I think if we can get it on a bigger stage and on a big screen, that'll be more impactful. Oh, absolutely. It is. The written word is important, but, you know, I think especially as our society continues to be more and more technology driven, you know, seeing it, the visual learning and it it just, it hits different. Yes. Yes. And I'm like, if we can get that on Netflix, Hey, if if they did the R Kelly special on Netflix, I'm like, I can put, I can put hush on Netflix. So, yeah, you know, this is your life's work. This is my life's work. So I've all, I'm, you know, I usually have heard about things and I research things before they hit Netflix, but I'm always so thankful that those filmmakers take the time. I, I had the director of the Jeffrey Epstein documentary and the director of the USA gymnastics documentary, both on the filmmakers on the show. And I was just like, I'm so thankful to you guys because you don't have to do this you know you there are other things you could be doing and they they did it and it put it in people's living rooms and they did it in such a way that people were interested to watch it and I was like thank you because people have to understand what it really looks like you know Jeffrey Epstein is such a big show because of all of his money obviously and that there were important names attached to it but his tactics were the same as that of a lot of different prolific abusers in terms of grooming yeah. And so I think, you know, it, I'm just crazy enough to believe that while I'm in the earth for God knows how many years, 
that I have the power to transform lives as it relates to sexual abuse and keep the conversation going. I think the biggest thing is to keep the lines of communication open, to keep the conversation going, to normalize the conversation. Because if we can normalize the conversation, then we can normalize people actually speaking up and out about it. You're hundred percent. All right. You say crazy. I say courageous <laughs> and uh, fierce and Thank you. <laughs> I'm thankful for it. And I love like hearing about this because it, <laughs> I wrote down, you write about real life. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. All, of your, all of these different projects. It's real life. This is it's what it really life. looks like. Well, please keep us updated on those projects because I definitely will, would love to watch them. Anything we can do to help with it too. Obviously we would love to. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. So we in the show every week with a three, the same three questions for people. And the first question is what does courage mean to you? Ah, so courage for me means being authentic. It means being bold and outspoken about those things. Like we talked about Shaughnessy, those things that want to hide in the corner in the dark. It means shining a light into dark places, Mm -hmm. no matter how uncomfortable it is for me. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. What is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Wow. (laughs) Best piece of advice is actually from an airline stewardess. And that is put the mask on you first. Put the mask on you first. You got to take care of yourself before you can take care of anyone else. Yeah. And it took me a long time. I feel like I was out here trying to save everybody else and trying Mm -hmm. to be everybody's friend and make sure that everybody else had what they needed. But Mm -hmm. I was dying on the inside. So if I can say anything, put the mask on you first. Yeah. That's great. Okay. Last question. What is one question that you wish more people would ask you? Mm, Wow. That they would ask me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm so used to be asking. Hmm. I would say I would want more people to ask me, what's your relationship with your mother like? Mm-hmm. I would like to be challenged on that more. Mm-hmm. I think people, they know me, they know what I do, they love what I do, but nobody ever really asks about like, my mother, my father. I think I'm pretty open about telling people that I don't know my father. So they mm-hmm. don't really touch that either. But nobody like ask about my mother unless mm-hmm. they know my mother. They, they're just kind of like, yeah, mm-hmm. she was born to somebody. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Do you think you said the way you phrased it was you wish that people challenged you more on that? Do you think that if people ask you more, it would you know push you in a different direction to do something different? Is that why you wish that? I think it would. I think it would because otherwise it's just in the background. You know, she's just in the background. We don't really do life together. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not really top of mind when when we do things as a family or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like my daughter just had a talent show and I I totally forgot. I was like, oh, I probably should have invited her, but yeah. it's over now. I'll send her the video. You know what I'm saying? Like right. it wasn't, she just wasn't top of mind for me. So yeah, I think if more people would challenge me about it. I tell you what, Tanisha, even in your answer to that question, it shows the type of person you are, <laughs> that you're trying to improve something. Um, I am, I am. And I don't know what it, improve- yeah, and I don't know. I think that the challenge, honesty with that question is, I don't know what improvement in our relationship looks like. It mm-hmm. won't look like the mother and daughter going to Macy's shopping and having lunch and tea and 
it probably won't look like that ever. <laughs> so it's that's like, hard. Sometimes that's a hard, I think there's a grief there that you have is. to grieve that you're not going to have that relationship like that you see in the movies or whatever, maybe yeah. even in your, your friends' lives or they have, and that that's hard. Yeah. And so growing up, because I didn't have a father, I remember calling a lot of people's dads, dad, mm-hmm. you know, I would call them dad because they were a dad to me. I have a godmother and I have probably two or three people in my life who I, I call mom because mm-hmm. that in some way, shape or form, they represent what I wanted in a mom, whether they mm-hmm. love me, they pray for me. Um, they pray for my marriage or they can watch my children. They can help me. That's, that's what I need. And I realize in my mind that she does not have what I need. She's not mm-hmm. equipped. So it's not fair to require something from somebody who she was never given that. So she wasn't equipped with it. She can't yeah. give it to me. In my mind, I get that shonesty. It's the heart that hasn't lined up with yes. the mind yet. It's, it's one thing to understand things intellectually, right? But then psychologically, it's a whole different ballgame to come to terms with things. Yeah. But thank you for sharing that too. I thank you for everything that you shared today, being vulnerable and honest and real. And I just am so excited to see your uh, projects that continue to roll out because I think they're incredibly important and you've got a great way with words. So thank you. Thank you for doing all that you've done. And I hope that we continue to hear from you as, as things progress and as they do that you'll come back on the show. For sure. Shaughnessy. Thank you. It's always an honor. And I know I'll see you next time. There will be a next time. <laughs> I sure do hope so. And thank you to our listeners for listening as always. And if you have any questions or requests for guests, please submit them at supportforsurvivors.com and we will see you next time. Thank you. 